Well, good morning, everybody. Well, it's, it's good to have all of you here this morning. Uh, thanks for, for joining us for worship together this morning. It's a, a beautiful Sunday that we can gather together and come together as God's people to worship Him. If you're visiting with us, let me uh, tell you welcome. Uh, it's good to have you, and it's good to have, have you visiting with us this morning. My name's Patrick. I'm the pastor here at Bear Creek. Uh, and if you would, before you leave, uh, in the narthex on your way out, there is a visitor card. Uh, we would love to know more about you and just sort of uh, be able to, to reach you and, and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, if you would, before you leave today, just fill out one of those and, and put it in the offering plate in the back, and we'll, we'll be able to, to know a little bit more about you that way. But it's good to have you, and we're, we're thankful to have, have you visiting this morning. If you look in your bulletin, I want to give you just a, a few announcements for you, things coming up this week. Uh, this Thursday, we have our growth group. So if you're part of the Thursday uh, small group, we will have growth group at the Parsonage at 6 on Thursday, looking at the second half of, of Chapter 4 in the book we're going over by Von Roberts. Um, also, next Sunday, we have a congregational meeting. Uh, this is our typical uh, twice-a-year meeting. In October, we typically we will elect new elders and deacons to fill in the roles on consistory. We will approve next year's budget and go over a few just housekeeping items. So next Sunday after worship, if you're a member, make sure you stick around so that we can go over that, that meeting together. Any other announcements this morning? Am I missing anything? I don't see anything. I did want to give an update on our missionaries in Ecuador, the Pipers. I was able to speak to Jonathan for uh, about an hour or so the end of last week and catch up with him. Uh, as, as you may remember, Becca, his wife, went through a, a month-long intensive of Spanish training. Uh, they've lived in Ecuador for a couple years, and her Spanish was, was well enough but had not quite caught up to where they would like it to be, and so she took a, an intensive with a one-on-one teacher of learning Spanish for a month, and and it went really well. Uh, there was a lot of fruit. The, the teacher that, that worked with Becca has now agreed to sort of be an ongoing tutor to continue learning uh, and just sort of build that relationship, uh, which is even better because I, I don't, Jonathan says that he believes that this tutor is not a believer. And so here's a, an individual one-on-one relationship where uh, already during the course of that month-long intensive, Becca and this woman were able to have gospel-centered conversations in Spanish. Uh, and she was able to, to ask questions and, and converse with her which was really good. So continue praying for, for Becca and for her tutor for Spanish training. Uh, also, when, when Bill, Michael, and I went down there it's two years ago now, uh, we met a man named Mateo. And Mateo was, he was living in Shell but working really on the outskirts of, of Shell towards the jungle. And there's not a lot of road. There's no roads out to where he lives or where this large group of impoverished people live. They, they simply just squat on the land and build homes where they can build them and there's no road that gets out to their homes, but Mateo has, has been working on building a community there and, and, and building a, a church there, planning a church there where there is no church. And uh, after a lot of work, they actually have, have been reaching the community and are working on building a church building uh, there in, in, this, in this small community. And one of the things that they're working on now is laying the foundation for this building and setting concrete and and doing different things. So we'll continue to, to give you updates on Mateo's church and how they're planting as I continue to talk to Piper, but wanted to, to fill you in just up to date so far. So we'll continue praying for the Pipers and for the work God's calling them to do in Ecuador. Well, as we, as we begin uh, our worship, I want to read to you from, from Psalm 119. We have been 
studying through the book of, of Deuteronomy over the last several months and reading to you a, a stanza out of Psalm 119. And I, I hope that, you know, we're coming towards the end of this, of this psalm and we're here in the second to last stanza. But one thing that stands out above anything else is the praise and the delight and the joy that comes from the psalmist in God's law. We typically think of God's law as being this heavy burden that lays across our shoulders that Christ has, has graciously freed us from and we're no longer under it. And this is true. But the psalmist delights in it. That when he reads God's law and he submits his life to God's rules and his, his statutes, that there is joy and peace and happiness and love that comes from it. So, so hear, hear this, this psalm of joy, rejoicing at the word of the Lord. Psalmist writes, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word. Like one who finds great spoil, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Pray with me. Let us begin our worship service this morning. Father, as we gather, we, we gather in joy, we gather in thanksgiving, we gather in hope, we gather in worship. Father, for this morning, we see all the great things that you have done for us. The Sunday morning worship together is a, is a visible and physical reminder that you, God, are saving a people for yourself, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and that we as your people belong to, to you. We are yours. So, Father, as we gather this morning in worship, we, we ask that your spirit would come and fill this place. That you would stir our hearts to devotion and love. That you would convict us of sin and wrongdoing. That our eyes would be open to our weakness and to the strength of Christ. We can do nothing without him, but in him we have everything. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing together this morning. Our, our first hymn is hymn 593, Lord Speak to Me. If you will, take your hymnal stand and sing with me.
the front of your hymnal, you should find a, a copy, a laminated copy of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, every week here at Bear Creek, we recite this creed aloud together because it is a vocal reminder of what we believe. This is what we believe is, is taught in God's Word. This is what we believe is truth. And this is what unites us as God's people, this truth. And so I invite you, church, if you believe it, to say it aloud with me this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. continue singing together with hymn 137, uh, Worthy of Worship.
Thank you. Please be seated. Now, what two announcements that I did forget that I'll, I'll draw your attention to now. We are looking to, to resume and pick back up our children's story as we get readjusted to life back in our sanctuary. And so, with that said, we will need volunteers for our children's story. And so we hope to get a, a sign-up sheet either this morning or, or in the coming weeks to, to start that. And with that as well, we uh, will we'll start back our nursery volunteers for those for our children that are four and under. Uh, if mom and dad need, need to send uh, young ones down, we are welcome to, to keep young ones here in worship. Well, that's the goal. Uh, but we also understand, personally understand, the, the struggles of having a two-year-old and a five-year-old. Uh, so we, will, we, we hope to have nursery. I believe this morning, uh, if, if it's needed, Paige, my wife, and Rachel will, will be available to go downstairs for nursery um, if it's needed. But with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the scriptures. If you have your Bible, uh, I invite you to grab it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 14. If you don't have one with you this morning, I'm sure there's one on your phone or a blue one on the end of your pew. Feel free to grab that and turn with me there. We are looking this morning, continuing through our study of this book, and we have reached the the 14th chapter, which we'll be reading all of this morning and hearing from the Word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. This is what Moses says to the people of Israel. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals that you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these. The camel, the hare... And the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of every kind, of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that is dyed naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and your, of your oil. 
and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money, and bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. <clears throat> the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning seeking your help. Having read your word aloud, help us to understand it. May it be written on our hearts this morning. Help me, Father, to proclaim your word, to proclaim your truth. Not my truth, not any any of my opinions or thoughts on the matter, but to proclaim your truth, your words, your gospel, your message. For you are king. We are not. May the meditations of our hearts, may the words of our mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. My grandfather was a career Air Force pilot. He flew helicopters for a number of years, traveled around the world, fought in Vietnam. He, was a, he loved the Air Force and loved being a pilot. One of his stations... Uh, he, he was stationed in Saudi Arabia for, for a time, and he landed and was getting situated, was uh, meeting his commanding officer, and his commanding officer, at the time that they were walking around the base, introduced them to a, a local man, a Saudi Arabian man, who, who continued to invite various military officers to his house to eat. And he was constantly at the base, constantly inviting everyone, say, come eat with me, let me have you in my home and, and fix a meal for you. And shortly after walking away from the man for the first time, my grandfather's commanding officer turned and says, whatever you do, do not accept this man's invitation. Because whatever, if you accept this invitation and, he, and you come into his house, whatever he puts in front of you at the table, you must eat to the very last bite or you will offend him beyond measure. So my grandfather, being a young man and probably a little bit more arrogant than he should have been, said, what's the big deal? This man just wants to be nice, and so he accepted his invitation one day. And he, he came into his house, he met his wife and his family, and he sat down at the table. <laughs> and the, 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 this little saucer was removed, the appetizer, the first course. And as the, the, the lid came off of the, the plate, he looked down and found his food looking right back at him. As the eye of a camel sat there in a little saucer for his enjoyment and pleasure. My grandfather did not offend the man, but slurped down the, the slimy eyeball and continued to eat the rest of his meal. 
But I, I was thinking about this, this as I was looking at this passage this week. I couldn't help but think of this story that he shared with me and my, my brother when we were little. And just being amazed at the various food cultures and customs of, of all sorts of, of societies around the world. That, that no one eats the same thing or in the same way or with the same practices. Every culture's dinner table looks different in some way, shape, or form. And certainly as we come to Deuteronomy 14 and we read of the, the animals and the various things that Israel was commanded not to eat and what they were allowed to eat. I mean, even if we've never eaten kosher, we, we likely have heard the term before and have some general understanding of what it means. That Israel, Jewish people, have, were given by God a, a set law regarding what they could and couldn't partake. What they could and couldn't have at their dinner tables. We know that Israel was called to, to be set apart, to be distinct, to be holy and different from the nations around them. One of the clearest ways that this played out in everyday life was their diet. They didn't eat what others ate. They abstained and refrained and ate food a certain way. They, they stood out from everyone else because of this. Even archaeologists today, as they're digging through ancient cities and, and homes, and they, they find a home, they can find a, a bone pile, a refuse pile. And based on what is not there, what bones are missing, they can actually make the determination that this is a Jewish home because of what's not there compared to what's there across the street. Now, I'll be honest, it was, it's been tempting all week to stand here before you and make a lot of food jokes and, and even at one point considered naming my sermon title, Christians, We Have the Meats, but decided not to for fear of copyright infringement of a certain fast food chain. But it would be easy for us to stand here and read this passage and then thank Jesus for bacon and call it a day. But, but I think that that would be an injustice to this passage. I think it would miss the, the beauty of God's word as he gives it in, in Deuteronomy 14. Because you see, as, as Israel was called to be holy, to be distinct and set apart from the nations, so are we. Christian, you are called, just as Israel was, you are called to live a holy life. And that means that you do all things to the glory and the praise of the God who has saved you. And this morning, I, I want to show you how that calling to, to holiness applies even to what you eat and how you eat it and with whom you eat it. Because the truth is, Christ is Lord. And if he is Lord, this means he is Lord even over our dinner tables. And so what I want us to do this morning is first look at the principle behind this law. Why did God command these foods to not be eaten or to be eaten? Because even if the practice may not apply the same way, the principle surely does. So first, here's the principle behind the practice. And it's actually quite simple. The principle is to be holy. God commands Israel to, to be holy as he is holy. And, and we must understand that this command is not given prior to the salvation from Egypt. It is not given prior to the Passover or prior to the ten plagues or prior to the Red Sea. This command is given after God has saved Israel. Because you see, Israel could not be holy prior to being saved by a holy God. And it's the same for Israel. It's the same for the church. We are not 
capable of being holy before we are, have been redeemed. God redeems us, and then he calls us to be holy. Now, holy is a word that gets tossed around a lot in church. It's, it appears across the pages, but as we've seen, and if you've been a part of our growth groups, holy is not really a word that is easy to define. So what does it mean to be holy? Well, holiness quite simply means to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different from everyone and everything else, to be other. And we're given this example in, in verse 1 of, of, the, of a certain distinction that doesn't really tie into the rest, but it's, to me it stands out as this example of what God is actually calling them to. And we get this example of grieving. You see, the Canaanites, the people around Israel, grieved in a very specific and albeit horrifying way. You see, when the Canaanites lost a loved one, when they suffered through, when they, when they experienced death in a family, they would cut themselves, mutilate their bodies, shave random parts of their head in this crying out. And, and so that it was a way of standing out among their neighbors and saying, this is a sign of the physical pain that I am in, in my grief. But Israel was not called to this. They were not called to mutilate themselves or to, to shave their heads in this t- style of mourning. Because they were different. Christian, you, you are not called to grieve the same way the world grieves. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, You do not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with, those, with him those who have fallen asleep. Yes, we grieve at the loss of a loved one. Yes, we mourn death. But we do it differently. We do so as those who have hope. Because we know that death has been defeated. And so our grieving looks different from those who don't know this. And so to be holy means that that we live differently from the world around us. We don't grieve like they do. We don't speak like they do. We don't raise families like they do. We don't view our careers and our hobbies like they do. We don't spend our money like they do. And we don't eat like they do. See, this is the principle behind all of Deuteronomy 14, for Israel to be holy. And this principle still applies. You are still called, like Israel was, to live holy lives. That hasn't changed. But the practice, these specific commands of Deuteronomy 14, no longer apply in the same manner. And I I want to explain why and how this works. So you see, this practice that we're, that we're given on top of the principle to be holy, the practice is this command of do and do not eat. This division of food and, and what, is, what is good and edible, what is clean and unclean. But one thing that we need to, to be clear on is, is that the law given here in Deuteronomy 14 and, and, and the book of Leviticus, the law given is not the first time that God gave commands regarding what could and couldn't be eaten. And we can go back to the very beginning, in the, in the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve the, the, the garden. He planted every fruit tree of every kind in the garden. And he said, you can eat them all, except one. The tree of the, the knowledge of, of good and evil. They were commanded to eat and to enjoy the fruit of every bush, of every tree, of everything, except this one tree. Do eat, do not eat. And then we fast forward a few generations into the time of Noah. And Noah 
takes the animals onto the ark. The flood comes, it, the waters recede, they get off the ark, and God gives a new command. He says, Behold, I give you in addition to every fruit of every bush and every tree, I now give you every animal. You can eat meat. The only thing that you must not eat is you must not eat meat with the blood still in it. Do eat, do not eat. Now we get to Moses. More generations and centuries pass, and once again, here we are given in Deuteronomy 14 a do eat and do not eat. But why so specific? Why, why does God get so narrow? Why does he get so specific at why some animals could be eaten and why others could not be eaten? And what's it all mean? Now, there have been literally hundreds of attempts of people trying to, to break down and explain the, the specificity and the various reasons why these animals could be eaten and these animals couldn't be eaten. And so I can give you a few of the examples of, of possible reasons. One, one reason is that it was health-related. The, the argument goes that the, the prohibited creatures were bad for the health of the Israelites, while others, the ones that were allowed, were good. They were healthy. They would have been approved on Weight Watchers. It would have been good for them. And actually, to, to back this up, in 1953, an American doctor, Dr. Mott, uh, did research. He published a study where he viewed various toxicity levels in, in, the, in the meats between the, that are given on this list. And he actually did find that a lot of the meats prohibited had naturally a higher level of toxicity than the levels of the meats that were allowed. But... Like every rule, there were several exceptions, and it didn't apply across the board. He found some of the approved meats that had as high or higher toxicity levels as, those, as something that was banned. And so it didn't quite fit the bill all the way across. Another reason, a possible reason or explanation, is hygiene. The prohibited creatures are less clean or, or really more likely to have a parasite or a virus. So, for example, pork brings a possibility of trichinosis if the meat is not cooked right. It can make you very, very sick. We also know that Israel was, was commanded to uh, not eat dead meat, meat that had died naturally. And then you have vultures and ravens that are scavenger birds, and they just eat whatever is dead. So they could also carry parasites or, or be unclean themselves. But again, it doesn't work for every creature. Not all of the prohibited animals carry this possible parasitic problem another reason is religious the the prohibited animals were sacred to the canaanites they were used in worship they they saw them as in the worship of false gods and there are certainly examples from history of uh, uh, that prove certain animals were tied to certain gods and and goddesses of past civilizations i mean we see in this passage in verse three the worst uh the verse says you shall not eat any abomination that word abomination has appeared three times already in Deuteronomy, and every time it's used in reference to the Canaanite religion. But again, this doesn't work across the board. Take, for example, the ox. The ox was frequently associated with Baal. Here's this animal that is, that is strong and fertile, and it was used in Baal worship. Israel is commanded not only to eat the ox, but also to sacrifice the ox in, in worship to Yahweh. So it can't be just religious reasons. Then you have a fourth reason, a created order reason, which I think is, 
is the most interesting, if not the most strange. This, this explanation says that the prohibited animals were abnormal in some way, shape, or form in the created order of God's design. So, for example, when you read through this list, you see that the groups of animals divided three ways. You have animals of the land, animals of the waters, animals of the, of the sky. Land, water, sky. And it's the same order that we find in Genesis 1 and 2 where God created all things. He created animals of the land. He created animals of the waters. He created animals of the sky. And that something in, in some of these animals that are considered unclean, you have a type of crossover between this division. So the ostrich, for example. The ostrich is a bird belonging with the things of the sky. Yet, as we know, ostriches don't fly. They're land creatures. And so because they, they break this division, they go against God's created order and therefore could not be eaten. The same thing with shellfish. Creatures of the sea have fins and scales. Well, shellfish don't. They go against the created order, so to speak. But the problem with this view is, as interesting as it is, the problem with it is that it, it relegates these banished creatures to a, a lower status than everything else. That somehow these creatures have been deformed in God's good world. But we know this is not, the, not true because Genesis 1 tells us that when God made all creatures, including the ones banished on this list, he declared them good. Now I can go on with example after example of how these, this list could be explained, but as you can see, nothing, some things work, but nothing works across the board. And see, the reason I believe that none of these attempts work is because they forget the principle behind the practice. We see in verses 1 and 2, God, Moses says, You are sons, you are children of the Lord your God. You are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And after he says that, then he goes into the list. You see, this list is given so that Israel would have guidelines that would set them apart from every other civilization, from every other nation, from every other people group, because God had already set them apart when he saved them from Egypt. I mean, these dietary laws were given as a way that Israel was to live out their special position that God had already given them. He says, I have saved you. Now I want you to live as my people. I have redeemed you. So live as a redeemed people. I have called you. So live as a called people. Or to use the biblical phrase, be holy because God is holy and he has made you holy. But. I think there's more to this. I also believe that it's more involved than a simple God said it, so do it. That's certainly enough. Don't, don't get me wrong. But there's more at work here. Because if, if, eating the, if these eating laws helped Israel to live set-apart lives, then why does the church, why don't we do this anymore? I mean, why, why are, do we no longer have to obey them? And when we are clear, I mean, it's not that we've just forgotten and let these rules slip for a few thousand years. I mean, Paul writes in the New Testament of, of the fact that the church doesn't have to, to eat according to these Jewish laws. But to answer this question of why, I think we need to understand and kind of 
look at the place in redemptive history. Where God is, is at and what is happening. And where we now sit in this, in this timeline. So, so go back with me to Eden for just a moment. Genesis 3. All, all is good. Man and woman are, are enjoying life in the garden. They are communing with God. It is perfect. And then the serpent comes and lures them into a trap. And by falling into this trap, they bring all of God's good creation down with them. And following that bite of that forbidden fruit, God curses all three parties. He curses the serpent, then he curses the woman, then he curses the man. And the serpent is cursed like this. God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The curse of the serpent. The man is cursed as well. God says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. And God says to Adam, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So connect the dots with me here. The serpent, God says, is a dust eater. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. Then he turns to the man and says, you're the dust. So very, very clearly, the serpent is the man-eater. He is their adversary. He is their enemy. He is their oppressor. He is their accuser. He is their destroyer from the very beginning. We also know in Genesis 3, verse 15, that in this time of cursing, God gives a promise, a word of hope. Because he turns to the woman and he says that you will have a child, you will have a son, and he will come and he will crush the head of this man-eater. He will crush the head of your adversary. He will crush that serpent. And the man-eater will be destroyed. So how does this connect to eating pork? Ralph Smith wrote, a, wrote an article. It's helped, he is, was very helpful to me this week. I want to read to you this, this quote from his article. This is what he says. He says, An intelligent and godly Israelite in Joshua's day, so the time of Deuteronomy, a little bit after, Intelligent, godly Israelite in Joshua's day would refuse pork, not only because God said so, that would have been sufficient reason, but also because he would have perceived the relationship between pigs and serpents. And because he would have understood that God forbade all animals that were similar to their tempter. If he thought deeply enough, he might have understood that serpent-like animals must not be eaten until the Messiah comes who will crush the head of the serpent and defeat the devil. To eat the serpents would signify complete victory over him. But not until the Messiah comes would that victory be won. Now, all has changed because the Messiah has come and won the victory. For Christians, therefore, eating pork should not merely be seen as equal to eating beef or chicken. Pork, shrimp, and other formerly unclean foods are special. They are victory foods. Foods that were unclean under the law are now clean specifically and only because of the cross of Christ. By eating what was formerly unclean, we are confessing our faith in the victory of Christ and the cross. And he finishes, he says, we eat the serpent because Jesus defeated it. And this this sounds like a joke, but I promise you it's not. Chicken and beef are great, but there's something special about 
pork and shellfish. And it's because of this. You see, when Israel ate, they abstained from these foods. And it was a reminder that the Messiah had not yet come. They were still waiting for salvation. They were still waiting for freedom. But now, when we see pork ribs on our plate, or shrimp and grits in the bowl, pulled pork on the, on the platter, bacon in our breakfast, it's not just delicious, it's victory. I mean, these are not special foods. They are, like, like Ralph Smith said, they are victory foods. The serpent has been defeated. So we eat and enjoy. And now we are free to eat as we please. This is what Paul commanded the, the church in Colossians 2. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. For these are a shadow of things to come. But Christ is the substance. First Corinthians, Paul will say, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. See, because of Christ, you and I are free to eat as we please. We are not holy or set apart based on our diet. We are not saved by what we eat or do not eat. Jesus told the Pharisees very clearly that a man is not defiled by what goes into his mouth, but what comes out of it. You want to diet? Then diet. And diet to the glory of God. You want to, you want to be a vegetarian? Then be a vegetarian to the glory of God. You want to be a vegan? Then go see a psychiatrist because something's wrong. <laughs> No one should be a vegan. No, the point is that food doesn't save you. Jesus does. And in that salvation, there is freedom to eat and enjoy whatever it is you want to eat or enjoy, vegan or not. So at this point, you're probably sitting there thinking, all right, Pastor, I got it. So, so God wanted Israel to be different. He gave them these food laws, but now that Christ has come, the food laws no longer matter so then, does God still want us to be different? And if so, how? And why does Deuteronomy 14 matter for us today? So, let me start clearly. Yes, God wants you to be holy, to live differently, to be set apart from the world around you. And that command applies to every aspect of your life, including what you eat. But we, we practice holy eating differently than how Israel practiced holy eating. You see, we practice it not by what we eat, but how we eat and with whom we eat. So, so let me show you. Holy eating by how we eat. If you want to honor God by eating in a holy manner, then you eat joyfully in the presence of God. Eat joyfully in the presence of God. In the... the Second half, of, beginning in verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter, we get this command about Israel tithing. And I realize that tithing may not be connected in your mind to food laws, but it is connected because tithing was something they ate. Israel was commanded, you see in verse 22 and 23, Israel was commanded to bring their tithe to the temple and then to eat it in the presence of God. He says, you shall tithe the yield of your seed year by year. Before the Lord your God in that place that he will choose, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock. God said, bring your firstborn, bring the firstfruits of your fields, bring it all, and eat it in front of me. It's almost like a, a chef at a five-star restaurant 
walking the floor of his restaurant just, just so he can see people enjoying what he's made, enjoying his food, enjoying his dinner, and how much joy that brings that chef to see people just indulge themselves on the things that he's given them. This is exactly what God said. He, God says, I want you to just come and bring your food, bring the blessings that I've given you, bring them before me, and eat them and enjoy them. And let me watch you do it. Because God delights in seeing his people delight in his blessings. I mean, the purpose of this command is, is really quite incredible. That a God would command his people, come eat with me. Just come into my presence and just have dinner. Eat good food. And this process was not meant to be burdensome. It was meant to bless Israel. He even gives a, a, a caveat. He says, look, if the temple's too far away, we see this in verses 24, 25, 26. If the temple's too far away, look, just sell your first fruits, sell the first of your, of your flock, and take the money that you make and bind it up, hold it tight, and then bring it to the temple later. And when you take that money, you bring it to the temple, you buy whatever you want. Buy whatever your heart desires, whatever appetite you have, whatever craving or urge you have to eat, buy it. And then eat that in the presence of the Lord. But you see, now as the, as the church, we have no temple. We, we don't have a place that the Lord calls and says, come and eat in my presence. Because you see, as we've seen already in Deuteronomy, we are the temple of the Lord. His spirit dwelling within us. We, we no longer have a temple. We are a temple. So we no longer bring our food to a special place to eat in God's presence, but we eat every meal in his presence. Every meal is one more reminder of his provision to you. Every plate is a serving of his blessing in your life. Every bite is a taste of his goodness. Every breakfast, lunch, dinner, or snack in between is a celebration of the wonderful blessings that he has given you. So let me ask you, do you eat like this? I mean, food is great, but so often food just becomes something we've got to get through. Grab a bite on the go, hit the road. Don't have time, eat it quick, let's just go. Grab something in a drive-thru so we can keep doing what we're doing. Do you celebrate the goodness of God in your food? And I'm, I'm, I'm talking more than a, a recited blessing before the meal. But do you see his blessing in your every bite? Do you taste and see that the Lord is good as you taste and see what is on your plate? God wants you, God commands you, Christian, to eat joyfully in his presence. Because he has given it to you to enjoy So this, we, we honor God. We eat holy. How we eat, we also do it with whom we eat. And so with whom are we called to eat? Everyone. Everyone, but especially those in need. Look with me in the, the last two verses of the chapter, 28 and 29. Because we're given this special command, this special tithe year. And it was the third year of the tithe where, where God says, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce that same year and lay it up within your towns. Big pile of food and tithe and meat and produce, all of it right there in this town square. And the Levite, who is the priest, who has no 
physical land, no home to call his own, because God has called the Levites to himself and says, you are special. Your job is to be priests, not farmers. They have no portion or inheritance, so they could eat of the tithe. The sojourner, the outsider, the non-Israelite could come and eat from this pile. The fatherless, the orphan, those that had no one caring for them, providing for them. The widow, a woman who had lost her husband, her source of income, her source of protection, her provision. Come and eat. You see, the blessing was given to bless others. I mean, it wasn't that some were self-sufficient and that others were not, but that both groups here, those that God blessed and those that God didn't, were, were commanded to learn dependence upon God through this third tithe year. Because, you see, those that had the blessing, those that had the produce, those that had everything God had given, they, taught, they tithed and they gave back to God who had made the provision for them. They did it year after year after year as this reminder that God was the source of their provision, of their sustenance, of their blessing. He gave it to us. And we give back a portion to Him. But every third year, they were reminded that not everyone was as blessed as they had been. There were those who who went without while they had more than enough. And so on this third year, they were commanded to use their blessing to bless everyone else. And those that lived without the blessing, the outsider, the stranger, the, the fatherless, the widow, the Levite, you see, they lived every year dependent upon the Lord. I mean, maybe, maybe some of you have been in a, a place like this where you're unsure of where meals would come from, of what you're going to eat tomorrow. These people had lived life like that. They were unsure of where their next dinner would be. And the only thing that they could do was to, to depend upon the Lord and say, God, just feed me. Give me something. Whatever that something is, I'll take it. And they were reminded of their dependence upon the Lord every time their stomach growled. But every third year, it became real to them as this visible sign that they were commanded to come and eat of the tithe of the Lord. Here's this pile of food and pile of resources that actually belong to God. It has His name written over it. People had given it to God, and God said, Here, take it. Eat it. Though it belonged to the Lord, He gave it back to them to provide for them, to feed them, to nourish them. Now, the church, we we no longer have a third tithe year. But we do have a dinner table. One of the greatest blessings that you can give to someone is to invite them into your home and have dinner with them. Share a meal together at your table. Because you see, this invitation is far more than just saying, let me feed you, let me put something in your belly. This invitation into your home is saying that God has blessed me in so many ways. And I want to share these blessings with you. I want to share my home, my family, my food, my table with you. So come and eat. And this is like my my grandfather's friend in Saudi Arabia. He was begging for someone to just come and eat with him in his table. Come into his house and, and share his food. What would it look like if if the church adopted that strategy? What would it look like if you and I went and we had to beg people to come and eat in our homes? 
Open your home, church. Open your table. Let down the gate. Tear down the walls that are guarding so many of your castles and let people inside. Bring in the stranger. Bring in the orphan and the widow. Bring in the homeless. Bring in the outsider. Bring in the brother or sister. Bring in the Muslim. Bring in the atheist. Bring in the non-believer. Share with them everything that God has given you. And sit at your table with you. See, of all the things that Deuteronomy 14 teaches us, it teaches us that food is a blessing. It is a wonderful blessing. One that many of us are looking forward to partaking in just over 30 minutes from now. You're going to eat lunch today. You're going to eat dinner today. Who are you doing it with? See, meals and, and what we eat means so much more than fats, proteins, and carbs. Your meal means more than its nutritional value. So eat. Church, you are commanded to eat because God is good and he gives good things to you. So eat. Eat because God has saved you and redeemed you for himself. Eat because the serpent has been defeated and we have victory over the enemy. Eat because we have so much to celebrate. Do we not? Eat and invite because we have so much to share. Pray with me. Father, you are good. We know this. We know this from the food that you put before us every meal. We know from the blessings that you give us, that you pour over us, that you are good and greatly to be praised. Father, forgive us for all the times that we think lightly of the things you've given us, of the food that you've put before us. Teach us thanksgiving. Teach us gratitude. Teach us celebration. Teach us invitation. That we may eat good food and that we may celebrate the victory of Christ over that servant. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, here at Bear Creek, we respond to the preaching of God's word by taking communion together. Now, if you don't have uh, communion but would like it, Ron is at the back. If you just raise your hand, he'll bring, bring it to you. Let me give a few instructions before we we come to to the table together. So whether or not you're a member at Bear Creek, I'm I'm not concerned about that in regards to the table. What matters more than membership at this church is is faith and membership in the actual body of Christ. So if you're a believer, if you have confessed faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and stand united with him, then you are welcome to this table. Not because I say so, but because Christ has brought you here. If that's not you, if you're not a believer, then this wafer and grape juice won't do a thing for you. Don't take it. But rather, take Christ instead. Because he saves, he satisfies, he redeems. What we eat doesn't save us. Christ does.
Christian, I can think of no better way to honor the teaching of Deuteronomy 14 than to come to a table together, specifically the Lord's table, and share a meal, a taste of a meal. Because here at the table, we are reminded of two things. First, in the bread, we are reminded of what Christ has done. The serpent defeated. And how is that serpent defeated? By the death of Christ, the death of God's own son. God said in Genesis 3 that that serpent would strike the heel of Eve's offspring. And he did. That son of Eve died as the serpent struck. But in his death, the heel, the head of that serpent was crushed under his heel. And three days later, to signify and to, to prove it, that son of Eve walked out of the grave three days later. He, is, he, is, he died, but he is dead no more. The body of Christ, broken for you. In the bread we look back, in the cup we look forward. And there are so many things to look forward to when we take this cup. We look forward to the new kingdom. We look forward to the return of Christ. We look forward to the removal and the eradication of all sickness and cancer and sadness. Gone. But this morning, I can't help but look forward to the feast. The meal where, God's, where Jesus told his disciples that he would not taste of this fruit again until he drank it new with us in his kingdom. Because you see, on that day when Christ returns, there will be a wedding where the bride of Christ will be married, united once and for all to our groom, our king, our Lord. And we will celebrate with a meal. This is but a taste of what's to come to the king. Let's sing one more song together before we go. Our, our final hymn this morning is hymn 466. Take my life and let it be. Stand and sing.
in your bulletin, you'll find uh, printed at the bottom, the Great Commission. This is our benediction week in and week out, and we say it aloud together. Because this is the final commands of Jesus. This is what we as his people are called to do. Go and make disciples. If you're thinking and trying to figure out a way to do that this week, let me just point you again. Have a meal with somebody. Have a conversation and share the blessings of the Lord with them. I invite you to say the Great Commission aloud with me. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.